You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. Oh God, we are thankful for your word. Help us to understand it. Help us to know it. Help us to trust it. Help us to sing it. uh, Because you are so good to us to have given it to us. So God, we pray for your help now in this time that we have together assembled under it. We pray for all these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Here we are. We've been marching our way through Exodus, and we have finally gotten to the Ten Commandments, this chapter 20, the most famous collection of laws and expectations of human living in perhaps human history, engraved on the most famous pieces of stone in human history, the title of one of the most famous movies of human history. Apart from Noah's Ark and David Goliath, perhaps the most famous section of the Old Testament Cultures have been using this section of scripture as a basis for human ethics essentially since they arrived, since these Ten Commandments came into being. Even though they are less prevalent in American culture and society today than they once were, they are often still in the news, often being removed from schools or courthouses. Inevitably, these stories become stories because of the strong feelings that are either for or against their presence in these public places. The Ten Commandments are extremely important to the unfolding narrative of the Bible, to Jewish culture, to the fulfillment of the law, whom we understand to be Jesus Christ. And because of all this, I wanted to really slow our walk through the book of Exodus down to a crawl through chapter 20. Not like a, like a dying crawl uh, across like the Sahara, where this is just going to like 
sap all strength and thirst from our bodies so that we eventually die in 10 weeks or something. But hopefully a crawl through a garden, which is like teeming with life as we are crawling through with a magnifying glass, understanding what it is that God has given us. So we're going to take 10 weeks to go through these 10 commandments. I think it's important that we slow down for a couple reasons. So that we can properly have a long time to understand the role and function of the law in our life, in the story of redemption. It's extremely difficult to understand. Perhaps you have done a read through the Bible in a year plan, and you, you did really good through the book of Genesis, and you're on it daily through the first 19 chapters of the book of Exodus or something, and then you, 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 you turned on to chapter 20, and it started to get a little strange, but these are 10 commandments that you're mostly familiar with, but then you turn the chapter on 21, and like throughout the rest of the book of Exodus, and then for sure in Leviticus, you're like, what in the world am I even reading? And people start dropping like flies in the second half of, of Exodus and in Leviticus in a Bible in a year plan, because it's confusing. It can be tedious, it can be weird, and frankly, to our modern years, the law as it's given to us can sometimes just seem immoral. So we need to think through some of these things deliberately. And to paraphrase Jonathan Edwards, there is no bit of theology in the entirety of the Bible that is more difficult to understand and which causes so much disagreement amongst Christians with how the law of the Old Testament and in the Old Covenant fits together and makes sense of life on this side of the cross. So while there's disagreement with how to understand the law in today's culture and society and on this side of the cross, I'm going to try to lead us in what seems to be the best way forward based on what the Bible says about itself and what it says about the law, as well as understanding how law worked in an ancient Near Eastern culture, all the while doing so with deference and with humility to others and that God might keep teaching us and shaping us. So we're going to have 10 weeks to spend some thought on all of these categories and questions uh, in preparation for the larger coming of the law, which we'll see beginning in earnest in chapter 21, and then several weeks throughout the end of the book of Exodus. But I also wanted to slow down for 10 weeks and 10 commandments, because while these commandments are so important, be honest. Before you heard Mike just read these 10 commandments, how many of them would you have been able to come up with on your own? If I'd asked you to come up with all 10 commandments, would we have been able to do that? Uh, I don't want to get us to a point where 10 weeks we would be able to just fill out a list of the 10 commandments so that we might be able to answer a question on a Bible trivia game or something. But by the time we wrap all of these 10 commandments up in mid to late October, my hope is that we will know them inside and out. We will love them inside and out. Though perhaps, maybe, not for the reasons that you might think right now in mid-August. So here's what we're gonna do each week for the next 10 weeks, I think. I think this is the plan. We're gonna think through each commandment in 10 halves, or 10 halves, in two halves. That would get really crazy. That's 100 sections. (laughs) Two, two halves, understanding the law and then living the law. The first half, will let us spend some time thinking through a big picture understanding of the law generally, but then uh, letting us narrow in understanding that law, that commandment more specifically. And then in the second half, uh, living the law will hopefully like put us into a cannon and will like shoot us, perhaps shoot us as like caterpillars, shoot us through a splintery and bloody cross so that when we come through on the other side, we have been transformed into something that comes forward with life out from the tomb uh, with our risen Lord together. So let's do it. 
Understanding the law. We're not going to spend a ton of time on the big picture of the law and the Old Covenant tonight. We've got lots of time to do that, but, I only want, uh, but tonight I want to spend a couple more minutes on setting up the big picture of these Ten Commandments specifically. You'll actually never see the words, the Ten Commandments, in the Bible. Uh, there are three places that you might see those words in your English Bibles, in our English translations, like in Exodus 34 and then twice in Deuteronomy. But the original Hebrew of what says the Ten Commandments is actually the Ten Words. These are ten distinct teachings or ten words of instruction from God to his people. There are actually, there's actually far more here than just specific commands or commandments. Uh, especially in the first five. There is teaching here. You might have been surprised how long it took for Mike to read the Ten Commandments. It took a little bit, because there's not just, thou shalt not do this. Uh, it is, there's teaching. In fact, there is even more than Ten Commandments. The second commandment tells Israel not to make graven or carved images, but then secondarily, it commands them not to bow down to those images. There are several commandments within the fourth commandment about the Sabbath, there are, and there are several sections or commandments about the tenth commandment, about coveting. In fact, if you grew up Catholic or if you grew up Lutheran, you might be surprised to find out that we in the Reformed Protestant tradition are treating the first commandment, no other gods before me, uh, differently than the second commandment, which is no carved or graven images, since your tradition and the Catholic or the Lutheran tradition combines those for what we call the first two commandments as one. The Catholic and Lutheran traditions then separate our 10th commandment into two. The ninth commandment being, do not covet, covet your neighbor's house. And then the 10th commandment, do not covet your neighbor's wife, uh, his servants, his animals, or other, other possessions. All that to say, uh, many throughout history have called this section of scripture in what the Bible calls this section of scripture. The 10 words. The 10 words of teaching from God to his people, or uh, in the Greek, the Decalogue. Deca meaning ten and log meaning logos, meaning words, the ten words, the Decalogue. I'm going to try my best not to ever call this the Decalogue because that sounds like academic and weird, but if I accidentally do, now you'll know uh, what I'm talking about. So the Decalogue is important, uh, important because these are the first ten words of teaching in the Mosaic Law. They act as kind of like the title page for the coming Next, 611 pieces of the total law. So when folks start dropping like flies in the Bible in a year plan, well, at least they got these 10. Uh, these are an important preface, an important title to the rest of the law, but they are also important symbolically. The number 10 is a very important symbolic number throughout the whole of Scripture. Uh, and there are 10 words here from God, which correspond to the 10 creative words of God in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, we read, and God said, lots and lots of times, and let me let you guess, how many times in Genesis 1 we read, God said? 10 times, that's right. God here in Exodus 20 is recreating like he did in creating in Genesis 1. He is recreating humanity as he prepares his son Israel to dwell with him, to live with him in his land, by these creative 10 words. These 10 words 
are also the norms and expectations of the covenant which Yahweh, which God will begin, we saw instituting in chapter 19, and then will be confirmed all the way in Exodus 24. We'll have plenty more to say and think about that in the coming months, about this covenant life, but as we all know, God writes these, maybe you don't know, if you're not familiar with the Bible or if you've never watched the Charlton Heston movie, uh, these 10 words get written on two tablets of stone. Many folks have, throughout the centuries have talked about these tablets of stone as the first table or tablet of the law and the second table or tablet of the law. And the first tablet of the law, the first table, many have observed, seemed to be concerned about Israel's vertical relationship with God. They are about how humans relate to God, how they are to love God and devote themselves to him. Where the second table of the law are about loving neighbor how humans are to relate to one another, how they are not to kill one another, they are not to steal from one another, they are not to lie about one another, and so on. And so many people have talked about the first table of the law as Israel's vertical relationship with God, and the second table of the law as Israel's horizontal relationship with one another. But as many have observed about ancient Near Eastern covenants, there are always two copies of the covenantal agreement that are written out for each party. And so many think that all 10 words were written on each tablet or table of the law. And then both tablets then go with the people, this part of the covenant agreement, as well as God in his presence going with the people. So each party has a tablet of the law that goes with Israel wherever they go. These 10 words then are the binding covenantal expectations of God and of his people as instituted here at Mount Sinai. One last symbolic reason for 10. 10 appears all over the Bible, but it's an especially prominent number within the construction of the tabernacle and then the later the temple. There are 10 lampstands. There are 10 tables for the showbread. There are 10 basins for the water in the tabernacle and the temple. Perhaps it's absolutely not a stretch to say that the words of God These 10 words, these 10 commandments, are a light for Israel. They are the lampstands, which inhabit the tabernacle and temple. They are sustaining and even more important than bread, the showbread in the temple. They are a life-giving water that is meant to flow out of Israel and to feed and water the nations, which is exactly what happens through the visions of Ezekiel and in Revelation. There is God's word, his law, and his expectations for living devoted to him and in love for one another that becomes a river flowing out to the world and bringing life to the entire world. So, I know that's a bit academic, but perhaps a good introduction to where we're heading for the next nine and a half weeks. So, if that's a brief introduction to what is the law, what are the Ten Commandments, or what are the ten words of God, now let's try to understand what is the law, what is this law, what is the first commandment. Read with me again, if you have your Bible, in Exodus 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, all these ten words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So as a reminder from chapter 3, anytime you see the word Lord in all caps, this is the covenant name of God, Yahweh, um, I am. This is what Moses or God reveals his name to be to Moses at the burning bush, or Yahweh, or its later English translation uh, as Jehovah. The word God here, capital G, lowercase O-D, is the Hebrew word of Elohim. So God is saying here, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, your Elohim. I am the Lord, your God. And verse 2 is extremely important in its placement before any 
further bits of the law come, before any of the first of the commandments come. There is a reminder of grace which comes before any giving of law, before any giving of expectation. God didn't come to Israel like a couple centuries ago, a couple of decades ago, when they were still enslaved in Egypt. God just like pops down and says, hey Israel, I am Yahweh. Uh, I've, I've got a couple of expectations of living for you. 10, actually much more, but let's just start with 10. Uh, here are the expectations for right living. Uh, I'm going to continue to pop back in maybe every year or so and to check on your progress. And when you are properly or acceptably beginning to honor your father and mother, when you are acceptably or respectably uh, beginning to tell the truth about one another or to uh, keep your sexual impulses in line, then, then I'll call you my people and then I will deliver you out of slavery. This is exactly the opposite of what happens. Salvation is not the reward for Israel's obedience. Instead, Israel's past salvation by grace alone, God coming and acting on their behalf and rescuing them of none, with none of their obedience in mind, their past salvation was to be the reason for Israel's now present and then future obedience to God. But verse 2 isn't just the preamble reflections on the entirety of what follows. I think verse 2 is specifically tied to verse 3, the first word, the first commandment. God is saying, because I am the one who has saved you, because I am the one who delivered you out of Egypt, I and I alone, therefore, because of that, do not have any other gods before me. The Egyptian gods didn't have any power over me. In fact, they were the ones who were enslaving you. So don't return back to worshiping them. And as you go, your Canaanite neighbors, they're going to worship tons of gods. You're going to see them worshiping Molech and Baal and Chemosh and Asherah, all of these other gods. Did they save you in love? Were they the ones who rescued you out of Egypt? No. These gods are going to make tons of promises to you of fertility and of prosperity but not out of love for you. They're not going to be making these promises out of love for you. They're going to be making these promises merely as, as a means of like a transaction. Make this offering, sacrifice this animal, give me these children, perform this ritual, and then these Canaanite gods will give you what you want, so they say. God here is saying, I am Yahweh. I am your Elohim. I am your God. There will be expectations of living, of offerings, of sacrifices and rituals, but they are all done within a covenant of love, not just transaction. And because of this, as your covenant husband, I desire, I demand your faithful loyalty, your exclusive loyalty. And this is what God is getting after by the end of saying, before me, you, should have, you, you shall have no other gods before me. This is a little unclear in the English, but Yahweh is not saying, like, don't have other gods ahead of me, before me in priority. Like, don't make, you can have other gods, but just don't make them a higher priority than me. This is not what he's saying. He's saying, like, before me, like, in front of me. Do not have other gods in my presence. Like, you know, this wedding ceremony that we're still right here in the middle of, that we saw beginning last week in, in chapter 19. God is saying, I am pledging 
myself to you as your husband in covenant faithfulness to you. So as my bride, do not bring another man before me in my presence, into our home, certainly into our bedroom. Throughout the centuries, some have said the first commandment and the second commandment, which we'll see next week, where God talks about himself as a jealous God. All of this makes God somehow to be a, like a power-hungry narcissist. Like the idea of God being a jealous God makes him weak, makes him insecure and irrational. Besides the fact that if he is the purest and most satisfying source of life and joy imaginable in the universe, then out of love for his people, he demands their loyalty. Like if like some personified mountain spring demanded that you drink out of it rather than drinking out of like a tepid rain gutter. Like the, the, the mountain spring has love for you. It wants you to experience life. It doesn't want you to get sick. But apart from all that, though, the nature of marriage, thinking about what's happening here in Exodus 19 and on as a wedding ceremony, makes all of this not only palatable, but like totally reasonable. Like if a husband brought home another gal that he had recently met, he brought her home and they got out of the car together and walked into the kitchen and the husband says, honey, come down here. I'd like you to meet someone. I love her. Uh, I'd like her to begin living with us. Now this second wife, whether she is either a short-term guest in the home or a long-term second marriage, this second wife steals all kinds of time, attention, and intimacy from what was meant to be a two-person, one-flesh marriage. No one would, abs- would think any less of this first wife if she like put her foot down and said, absolutely not, get out. Like we would not think her a power hungry narcissist or weak or insecure. She is just living within the exclusive norms of a covenantal marriage. And so now Israel is married to the Lord their God. But this is also true in making demands for worship and love for us today as well. So now that hopefully we understand this law, at least this commandment, a bit more in its context, let's context, let's give the rest of our time towards living the law. Israel is to not have any other gods in the presence of God. Now, what we mean, what we aren't going to mean in these 10 sections of living the law over the next 10 weeks uh, is that the expectation that we, that we will all get to a place where we will finally never, ever, ever break any of the Ten Commandments ever again. We'll have much more to think through in the role of the law, which convicts us of sin and drives us to the cross. But while we will never keep them perfectly, these commandments, as reaffirmed in the New Testament, are expectations for God's people. They are for our own good. They are for our own joy as we walk closely with the Lord. And they are to be clear displays of God's character as we walk uprightly before the nations. And so God does indeed call his people then and today to walk into an undivided, exclusive, devoted worship and love with the Lord their God. Most Americans, we find nothing wrong with people giving God worship, giving God love. Even though there are an increasing number of very loud critics of Christianity and loud critics of 
uh, religion in general, most Americans would commend others to find some bit of meaning in knowing God, in loving God. But this first commandment introduces a major stumbling block to today's religious understanding. Religion as good, religion is good as long as as it is humble, as it is preferably quiet, as your religion does not show itself in the real world, and certainly as long as it keeps itself from making any kinds of claims that would seemingly exclude others. Elevating my religious claims and beliefs as more true or only true over yours or another's religious claims or beliefs. Now, it's my personal tendency to now want to jump into like a 10-minute diatribe of philosophy about like mutually exclusive truth claims and stuff and to like try to give us some all sharper uh, tools for our tool belt in thinking about the truthfulness and the exclusivity of the Bible and of Jesus uh, maybe all of us can go to school tomorrow uh, at UNM with all you UNM students, and we can all walk into our own personal God is not dead fantasy uh, and like shut down the claims and philosophy of our arch nemesis, Kevin Sorbo. Uh, but here's the thing. There's a time and a place for all that. But while the Ten Commandments have plenty to say to the world out there, and in fact, If the world out there would all consider the Ten Commandments and begin to uh, think about and live into the reality of the Ten Commandments, uh, I think we would all, the, the world would just be a better place. But the Ten Commandments are given to those who are already in covenantal relationship with God, who now seek to obey him, not to earn their salvation or to just make the world a better place, but in response to the salvation of the Lord. And so, rather than turning our attention outwardly, rather than turning our attention to how just American culture just doesn't think about God's word anymore and just doesn't obey the Ten Commandments anymore, I want to get down on our hands and knees with magnifying glasses out, crawling through the gardens of our own hearts. Because seriously, if we are really honest with ourselves, how much different are we than the open-minded religious buffet of American spirituality. We like Jesus. We might even love Jesus. God has revealed himself to us as holy and as righteous and as good. Confronted with his holiness, we understand ourselves as sinners in need of his grace. We respond to him in faith and love. But While we may agree that the God of the Bible is the only true God worthy of worship, while we may agree that Jesus is the only way in this world to salvation, just like Israel, I'm afraid that we are still tempted to treat our covenantal relationship with God as a both and. We are totally down with walking with God as long as we can keep walking with our other gods too. We'll have plenty more to talk and think through next week about idols and the idols that we make, but perhaps the biggest little G gods that we are very, very hesitant to give up because of our exclusive love and devotion to Yahweh, the Lord our God, are the same little G gods that humans have been tempted to worship and give their loyalty to for as long as we have existed. The gods of money and sex and power. 
the gods of Marx and Freud and Nietzsche, who say that humanity is enslaved and what humanity needs is liberation, that humanity is enslaved and class struggle and economic oppression. What humans need is to be free of economic burdens, that they might live in a, utop- in a utopia where they are, there are no more needs of money. There are no more need of possessions because we just get whatever we want and have whatever we want. Or that human- humanity is enslaved in sexual or emotional repression. And what we humans need is to be free of outside expectations and instead pursue living into the utopia of doing what makes us happy and what makes us feel good, or that humanity is enslaved in fearful weakness and mindlessness. And what we humans need is to rise up and to take control over what lies in front of us. We need to march into the utopia of individual empowerment and self-actualization, of living what I want to live. Now, there are some very small inklings of truth in all of those worldviews. But glimmers of philosophical truths make very repressive and enslaving gods. And yet, like Israel and every other people before us, we hear these seductive whispers. And we think, yeah, I'm happy. I'm happy to give God certain parts of my life, but I know that he won't, subconsciously even, I know that he won't fill all of me. So I will depend upon these other gods to fill up what is lacking. And in fact, if God can actually be a vehicle toward getting me toward these other gods, toward getting me these other things, towards these other deeper desires, then even better. I'm all for that kind of God. And so we come to Christ and expect him to bless our jobs and our businesses, to bless our paychecks and to make us wealthy. And we even become angry or even doubtful when we go through times of financial difficulty. Like, where are you, God? No matter the size of our paychecks, most of us want to get to a place where we no longer have to have any worry about whether we're able to buy whatever we want whenever we want it. But the question then becomes, who is actually the big G God and who is the little G God? If God just becomes the means to which, the vehicle towards getting us our deeper desire of financial stability and whatever our hearts desire, then who is serving whom? Or we want to get married so that all of our incredible sexual fantasies will all come true. Or we walk in purity in our youth because God is going to reward that purity with something even more mind-blowing in marriage, which God is serving the other God there. Or even it seems unreasonably repressive or archaic for God to make any claims over my sexual life, over my desires. So yes, I'll I'll walk hand in hand with God, but all the while with my other hand holding the hand of Aphrodite, who with soothing words whispers into our ear, just urging us, causing us to, to believe that surely God does not want me to be lonely. Surely God doesn't want me to have this kind of fulfillment that I desire. And in fact, listen, there is no freedom. There is no fulfillment apart from fulfilling your desires. And so we walk with God amidst pornography, amidst hookups, amidst selfish marital love, amidst even longing fantasy. 
Who is the capital G God in this situation? We desire to grow in power and influence. We want more and more promotions, so there are fewer and fewer people above me to tell me what to do. Because if we're really honest with ourselves, the God that we are most tempted to worship before God, in front of God, the God that we are most hesitant and unwilling to give up the worship of is the God of ourself. I will decide what I want and when I want it. I will decide what to do. I will decide what I want to watch and when I want to watch it, go where I want to, sleep as much as I'd like, sleep with, ever, with whomever I'd like, eat or drink whatever I'd like, and buy whatever I want. And then William Ernst Henley's poem, Invictus, becomes the subconscious drumbeat of our soul. I think this is up here. Yeah, this is the first and the fourth stanza of this poem that I think is the subconscious drumbeat of the American soul. Out of the night that covers me, black is the pit from pole to pole. I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And then, Lord God of heaven, if you would like to come into my life and be part of that, well then by all means, you're invited. Kevin Young is right in paraphrasing this first command from God to say, either you worship me alone or you do not worship me at all. Years later, after this day at Sinai, Joshua is going to renew the covenant and he will tell the people, put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Put away these other gods and serve God in a singularly devoted way. Centuries after that, there's a contest between Yahweh and Baal where Elijah tells the people, if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Whoever shows himself to be of value, of virtue, of of might and power, follow him, but not the other. And then when Jesus arrives on the scene, he would continue in this line of thinking by saying, no one can serve two masters. You may think you can, but you cannot. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Who is serving whom? Is God the ever-increasing object of our love and of our worship, or is God merely a vehicle toward getting us the things that we more deeply desire? We have nine commandments coming that are going to give us a ton to think about in how we act what we should do, what we should not do. But this first commandment is first and primarily concerned about whom you love, whom you worship. And therefore, this first commandment is primarily concerned about who you are. We've got nine more commandments to think about who, what you do, but who you are, who you love. Now, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, can't encourage you any more highly than to say, spend some time in reflection this week. Spend some time in reflection tonight. As we'll think through next week, everyone worships. It's just a question of what and whom you worship. And so the question of reflection ought to be, are the gods that you are worshiping, probably that of money and sex and power, are they actually keeping their promises of joy and of liberation? of freedom and of life? 
Or are they just enslaving more and more and more? Not only does God demand your worship and love, he is, the cre- he is your creator and he owns you just like every other bit of creation from the highest and biggest star in the universe to the smallest minnow in the sea. He demands our worship and love, but he desires it as well. He desires your actual joy. He desires your actual freedom and liberation. Humans have been trying to create utopias for millennia. No matter what politicians get elected into power, what kings come into power, no matter the stability of our jobs, the stability of the economy, the wisdom of our own personal financial investments, no matter the excitement of our emotional fulfillment and our sexual fulfillment, all of these are good gifts, but terrible gods. Terrible, repressive never satisfied gods. And so Jesus is not standing before you today saying, begin to love me better. Worship me better. Do better, and then I will check in in a couple of weeks or months or years and monitor your progress. If you've shaped up by then, then I'll forgive you. Then I'll make you mine. Then I'll have something that I can work with. No, Jesus comes to us today wherever we are in our weakness, in our lack of love, in our false and unsatisfied worship, in our sin, in our self-worship, in our using other people for our own desires and our own purposes and uses, and yet marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, freely bestowed on all who believe. So you who are longing to see his face, will you this moment his grace receive to find freedom and liberation by his grace that then we might walk in the life that he has given for us? Because for those of us who are Christians who belong to the Lord, he has not just saved you from sin, but he has saved you for holiness. He has saved you for himself. He has saved you for covenantal faithfulness and covenantal exclusive love. Perhaps you've been walking hand in hand with other gods this week. Perhaps you've pretty much been walking hand in hand with other gods your entire Christian life. Maybe you've never walked with Yahweh in a singularly devoted way. Well, first praise the Lord that he is faithful when we are faithless. I could never keep my hold of the Lord's hand through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. My hand often wants to let go and just singularly devote myself to other gods. But he will hold me fast. The reality is is that until Christ returns, we will never perfectly love God and serve him in a singularly devoted way. But as Joshua told the Israelites, as they renewed their covenant with God, Christ Church, put away the other gods that your fathers served and serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. There is joy in that. There is freedom in walking with the Lord, in putting away the gods that will seek to further enslave you. Each Sunday, we renew our covenant. Like Israel renewed their covenant with Joshua as they entered the land, we do so each week at this table. We renew our covenant with Christ our King. And it's not that the covenant went bad in the past six days, that we have to keep remaking it to ensure our salvation or something, but that 
Each Sunday, we are reminded of the covenant's place and importance in our life, of the love of Christ, the bridegroom, of we, the church, his bride. So as you come to the table tonight in thankfulness and gratitude for the broken body of Christ and the shed blood for you that cleanses you and brings about forgiveness and peace, come also this evening. Come in consecrated devotion in singularly devoted love and worship to Christ. So perhaps while tearing the bread this evening, you can say to the Lord, you are greater than all the gods. And then perhaps as we drink the cup tonight, we can ask the Lord for help. That Say, help us put away the gods. Let's put away the other gods by God's grace and with his help. Because even though we are still walking through the wilderness, the rest of our life will be that of a wilderness wandering. Oftentimes, we will not be getting the things that the other gods are promising. Nevertheless, Lord, help us to put away the other gods because you are with us. You provide what we need because you provide yourself. You are our rock, our shield, our fortress, and our portion forever. You are our God. May it be true for us, Christ Church. Let's ask that it might be so. Father, we admit our frailty. We confess our false worship. We confess our tendency to be so easily persuaded by the whispering, soothing words, the promises of other gods, which promise to fill us up where you, uh, they say, are stingy and unwilling to fill, where you are lacking. But Father, it is not true. You are our portion forever. You have come to bring us joy and abundant, full life. Help us to believe it. Help us to walk in faith. Help us to put away the other gods and walk before you with you and you alone. Help us to worship you and you alone. Each minute, hour, day, and passing year, help us more and more as your people to be consumed with a vision of your glory, your holiness, and your love for us, your bride. We pray for all these things in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.